Sup, freaks? It's your Uncle Marty here. Voice is a little... How, how does my voice sound, Logan? Voice sounds deep and rich. It does. And sick. I'm sick. If you caught uh, Boogergate on RHR last Thursday, that was the beginning of a cold. Rock me. I lost my voice. I didn't have a voice Friday or Saturday. Still getting it back now, as you can see. A little cold won't stop your Uncle Marty. I'll be here, freaks. The content needs to get there. You need to, there's a lot of stuff going on in the world. Just because I have a cold doesn't mean we can't get the content out there. Don't say your Uncle Marty doesn't fight through adversity. I mean, I'm hearing my voice in the headphones right now. It is pretty sultry. Should I start a jazz radio station? Coming to you live from Austin, Texas. That's my, my best saxophone. We got Logan Troy in the corner, Rita. Rita, serenade you freaks with a nice sax melody. Hit him. <laughs> it was a valiant effort. Hopefully I'm better by the next episode. We'll see. Great rip. Peruvian bull. Talking about the dollar end game theory. Dollar end game theory that he has his book. This is a back to basics episode. Back to the basics with how royally screwed the incumbent financial monetary system is. Good Buell, Buell, a good bull fuel episode. Apparently the cold makes it so. I can't even speak. Can't articulate words, thoughts. But enough of that. We got to do the top four boostograms of RIP 413, resisting mRNA food with Charles Mayfield. Great RIP. You guys got to go listen to it. At Eric99, 50,000 sats. Stay humble, stack sats. Eric, thank you for your continued support. Great advice. <laughs> you can do that every time. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be that Matt now. At Viking USA, 5,000 stats, sats, great guest. Thank you. Thank you, Viking USA. Are you in Minnesota? At Mark C, 3,333 sats. Three is across the board. Balindrome boost, technically. Great rip. Beef fat on my face. Signed up for crowd health. MRNA free. Thriving. That does seem like a good setup there, Mark. You are thriving. I'm happier thriving. And last but not least, at Agrarian Contrarian, 3,000 sats, real local food. Support your local beef initiative producers with a flex emoji. I think my muscles are bigger than the flex emoji. What do you think, Logan? I mean, the emoji's little dot on a screen. Yeah. This is, this is, this is a force of nature right here, Logan. Has Actually, do you even have arms? I can't see anything there. Yeah, I'm in camo. They're here. Maybe I could use this voice to become an influencer in the manosphere. Should I do that? Need more beard and less hair on your head. And I think I'd need to be 45 divorced without children. The manosphere is an interesting sphere. Should we be taking advice from these men? Don't trust any woman. No. That's what they'll tell you. 
And a lot of these guys seem like they're projecting, if you ask me. Projecting their insecurities and lack of success onto impressionable young men. If you're a young man out there, <laughs> just don't think too much about it. Just find a good girl. Be good. Like, just don't think too much about it. Stay away from the dating apps. I'm officially a Manosphere influencer now. What's <laughs> up with River? River, it's funny you ask that. It's a pretty dope company. It's a Bitcoin company. It's the main sponsor of this podcast. It's a great way to stack sats. Talk about stacking sats. Great advice. So if you want to follow that advice, you go to river.com slash TFTC. You set up an account. You start stacking sats via River. You set up a DCA. If you set up a dollar cost average, a set cadence of when you're going to buy a certain amount of Bitcoin using River. You don't have to pay any fees on those buys. It's a beautiful thing. But beyond that, you can stack sats differently as well with River. You can mine with River. River mining. They're expanding their capacity. So you want to buy an ASIC, plug it in with a hosting contract, stack sats into your River account via mining. You can do that as well. River.com slash mining to check that out after you set up your account using River.com slash TFTC. Yeah, it's a Bitcoin company built for Bitcoiners by Bitcoiners. No trusted third parties. They built their own exchange. They built their own wallets. They built their own coding libraries. They don't have third-party dependencies like Prime Trust. If you hold Bitcoin on River, they don't recommend it. But if you do, it's in a multi-sig cold storage with 100% reserves behind it. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful team. It's a beautiful time to be alive, freaks. Don't waste your time. Time is precious. You got to respect your time by saving good money called Bitcoin. So set up your account on River today. River.com slash TFTC. And when you do that, like you need to move your sats off river, where do you go? Guess what? It's a few dozen people down, more than a few dozen people down the hall at Unchained. Rebrand. They had their Facebook moment. They dropped the Unchained capital. They dropped the capital. Now it's just Unchained. It's sexy. It's short. To the point. They have sexy products. They're going to help you eliminate single points of failure. Their vault, two or three multi-sig. If you need to custody your Bitcoin, you want to distribute your risk, eliminate single points of failure. Unchained's vault allows you to do that. Two or three multi-sig. You hold two keys. Unchained holds one. They announced in their funding announcement last week that they're even going to expand the optionality within that vault service as well in the future. So maybe you don't have to hold two keys. They have a trading desk. If you want to buy Bitcoin, put it right in that vault. You don't have to pull out a wallet, put an address on the website. You set up your vault. You get an expo with that vault. You buy Bitcoin via the trading desk at unchained.com slash trading. And it goes straight to the vault. It's a beautiful thing. They have their lending desk. If you want to use your Bitcoin as collateral to get out US dollar loans, put up the Bitcoin. You get a dollar loan, you pay back your loan. If you want to put your IRA into Bitcoin, hold your own keys you can do that go to unchained.com check all this out tell them the tftc sent you it's time to step up your game freaks work with bitcoin companies not crypto companies it's certainly not dirty fiat companies which crypto companies are actually dirty fiat companies like on crack this room is also brought to you by good friends at crowd health crowd health is here 
using it today. I am using CrowdHealth today. My son has a, a doctor's appointment. He's getting a test done. We're using CrowdHealth to pay for it. CrowdHealth is a community that is trying to bring sovereignty to healthcare. Incumbent health insurance company, is just, if you go listen to the episode with Charles, we talk about it. Opaque, impersonal, expensive. CrowdHealth is here to change that. It's not health insurance. You pay a monthly fee. It builds up in a, uh, an account, a bank account. If you ever have a health event, you go to the doctor, you get the bill, you bring it to CrowdHealth. You pay the first $500 and the rest gets crowdfunded by the CrowdHealth community. Again, it's community. They don't like fatties. It's, it's all healthy people. So the overall healthcare cost of the CrowdHealth community is lower. So you're going to pay out less than you would with typical health insurance. You build up your account. You get your bill. You pay the first $500 and the rest gets crowdfunded. They've had 100% of bills funded to date. Can't guarantee it, but it's working so far. What else do we got to say about CrowdHealth? I feel like I'm missing Oh, they have a Bitcoin community where you build up your account to a certain extent. And then once it's built up, uh, going forward on a month-by-month -month basis, you'll pay your monthly fee. Part of it will go into your bank account. Part of it will go into SATs. So you can speculative attack your future healthcare costs. And if... You listen to this episode of Peruvian Bull. Bull. It's pretty like you may, you may like have your health care funded for quite a while. But the dollar end game plays out. <laughs> Excuse me. You're going to need some crowd health. I need some crowd health. <coughs> I got the black lung, Pa. I got the black lung. I was in the coal mines. Go to crowd, join crowdhealth.com slash TFTC. Set up an account today. <coughs> I'm losing it. Last but not least, this room is brought to you by our good friends at Bitcoin Talent Co. Recruiting firm built by Bitcoiners for Bitcoiners. If you're a company in the space that's looking for talent, you need the best talent, go to bitcointalent.co, connect with their team, get onboarded. They'll understand your needs, what you're looking for. And they'll go get you the talent that you need co-founder build up the recruiting team at uber not sure if you heard about it unicorn i can't even do a high pitch voice <coughs> stop laughing at me logan no alternatively if you're looking to get in the space you're in tech you're in banking you're in finance you're a bitcoiner you're stranded on an island at the company you're working for you don't like it but you don't have a way to get in and access the industry that you so desperately want to work in, go to bitcointalent.co. Set up an account. If you have the skills to be placed at a job in one of the Bitcoin companies, also partner with Bitcoin Talent Co., you will get placed. Go to bitcointalent.co, tell them that TFTC sent you, and enjoy this rip. I'm going to go cough. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. What is up, freaks? It's your boy Marty Bent here. 
on a lovely Monday afternoon in Austin, Texas, sitting down with Peruvian Bull. Is that what uh, we should go by, the NIM here? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's what I go by, Peruvian Bull. It's just my pseudonym that I've been using for writing. Um, but yeah, happy to be on the show. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming on. I mean, I think this uh, this conversation was incited by me finding your Dollar Endgame series on YouTube and writing about it in my newsletter. And I wrote about it because I thought it was just a very good, succinct, it was 20, 30 minutes all in dissection of the path um, that that led us to Bretton Woods and then eventually where we are today. So I guess to jump into it using that as a launching pad, what drove you to to start that series specifically and get this story out there? Because again, I think it's important for people to understand the historical context of how we got here and what you did was a really good succinct distillation of the the events that led us here yeah sure so um i actually started writing this series about two years ago in the summer of 2021 um i was part of a, a reddit community and um it was mostly focused on stocks and and um specifically like corruption in the financial markets and i started getting to arguments with people over monetary policy and economics and so i just decided to write a series and one of the benefits of using Reddit as my medium for posting was it forced me to limit the character count of each post. And so I had to like distill all these, all these readings I've done and, and education I've had through, you know, for monetary economics over the past six years um, into like very, very succinct and concise um, statements. And so um, you're referring to part one and part 1.5, which is entitled The New Rome. And it's basically, yeah, laying out how the U.S., you know, were, was instated as the world reserve currency after Bretton Woods and how that worked well enough for a few decades as, as the reserve system worked, um, worked its way through this, through the uh, monetary and economic milieu. And then we ran into what's called Triffin's Dilemma, which is expanded on in several different chapters of my book. But um, it's essentially this paradox that an, an economist, Robert Triffin, brought in front of Congress in 1960. And he pointed out that in a, in a gold reserve system, um, the world reserve currency holder faces a dilemma because they have to export enough currency to meet, you know, the demands for global trade and the demands for the reserve currency. And so if you think about it, you know, the U S being the reserve currency has to be a net exporter of, of our own, our own dollars. And that means we have to be a net importer of goods. Um, but it means in the long run that we have to create more dollars, um, than would be otherwise justified by, our amount of gold reserves. And so he said, we're either going to print too many dollars to, and to, you know, dilute our holdings of gold reserves, um, or we're not going to do that. And global trade and global commerce is going to grind to a halt because there won't be enough liquidity in the system to, to handle, um, you know, global settlement. And so um, that came to a head in 1971, obviously under Nixon, he decided to go the route of uh, just completely discon disconnecting us from the gold standard. Um, and so now we're on this petrodollar fiat system, and that's been the status quo for the last 50 years. But yeah, my, my series is trying to explain this strange dichotomy of, of our position as a world reserve currency and how it you know, benefit, benefits us for sure in the short term and has a bunch of um, you know, military and economic uh, benefits for the United States. But in the long run, it is, I believe, a, a risk to the United States. Um, and I expand upon that in a chapter called the sword of Damocles in my book. Yeah. 
No, and I think we're definitely seeing the, the ramifications of Triffin's dilemma today. I mean, another part of that, if you're going to have to export dollars and main vehicle of that export being importing goods from other countries, obviously that has led to the complete decimation of our manufacturing capacity and um, all the factories here in the United States. And that has led to uh, a crisis of <laughs> good jobs or more humble jobs, blue collar jobs, not being able to sustain your average American's lifestyle. And so fast forward to today, where we have trillions of dollars on the Fed's balance sheet, inflation is high, and people really don't have good jobs here in the United States or hope for the future because the reserve currency status forced us to move all those jobs mm -hmm. overseas. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I point that out as well. You know, in my opinion, the one of the driving factors for Trump's election was the deindustrialization de of the American heartland. And you can look at it, you know, basically in every single state that that was affected by, you know, manufacturing being exported, you saw rampant increases in in crime, in depression, in, you know, mental health disorders, uh, suicide, drug abuse. Um, you know, it's really taking a toll on these people, especially men who who, you know, need to earn in, in order to provide a living for their families. And so it's, you know, our status has definitely helped us in some ways, but I think it's hurt us in, in more ways than people realize and that and that these these uh, the drawbacks of the reserve status are starting to build up more and more. And we're gearing up for a total switch um, of, a, of a monetary system. Yeah. I mean, that gets us to the name of the series, the end game. Are we in the end game? And if we are, what comes next? Yeah, I've, I've talked about this a lot with, um, I'm not sure if you're, if you're uh, aware of Brent Johnson, Santiago Capital on Twitter. Yes, yes, he's not yeah. too fond of Bitcoin, but. Yeah, he's kind of agnostic. He's a, he's a dollar bull, um, and he and I have had some interesting back and forths along with Luke Roman, but I, I've read a lot of his work. I've, I've deep dived into it and talked to him a lot, and he believes as well that we're kind of in the end game in the next five to seven years here. Um, for the U.S. dollars reserve currency, and and the reason for that is, you know, there's there's multiple signs pointing to this, but um, this is where I start to go into the analogy of the sword of Damocles. And so, um, Damocles is a it's a parable written by Cicero um, in like you know 200 A.D. about this um, king in Sicily who was threatened all the time by his enemies. And he was so paranoid that he would have his daughters shave his beard because he wouldn't trust another person. And he had a court flatterer named named Damocles who would tell him that, you know, being a king must be amazing. And so he said, well, why don't you, I'll let you be king for a day. And so he let he lets him sit in the middle of the court on a, a sofa and gets fed grapes and wine, um, you know, by beautiful women. And, and Damocles is sitting there and enjoying it. And then he looks up and he realizes there's a sword hanging by a single strand of horsehair above his head. Um, and so this parable is, a, is an analogy for, you know, with great power comes great risk, right? That heavy lies the head that wears the crown. Anyone who, who controls a reserve currency system at the same time has immense, um, you know, hegemony, but they also have immense risk because if they lose that hegemony, the drawbacks and the ramifications from that will come in the form of, you know, a, an extreme devaluation of their currency. And the reason for that is because, if you think about it, we've been exporting dollars for several decades, right? And these dollars have built up, obviously, in the form of petrodollars. These these are you know surpluses for oil exporting nations, also just for other just general exporting nations, nations that export us manufactured goods like Japan or Germany. 
Um, and they recycle these dollar surpluses back into treasuries. And so this results in trillions and trillions of dollars of treasuries building up overseas. And you know, while, this, while inflation's low and muted and while treasury rates are high enough to justify them holding them, um, you know, this system makes sense. Um, but as Luke Roman pointed out, in 2015, foreign central banks stopped buying treasuries on net. And so they were just holding their, you know, they're holding their holdings flat. They're basically not adding um, to their to their uh, treasury holdings anymore. Um, and then starting in 2022, 2021, a lot of these countries started divesting from treasuries. And now we're running to an issue where a lot of these countries like Japan, you know, or China, they might be facing devaluations of their currencies on the Forex market. And the only response for them you know, all these countries need dollars in order to, to transact globally and to settle, um, you know, international trade as well as they need it as a reserve currency. And so if they're running out of dollars and their currency is falling on the Forex market, they're going to have to sell treasuries to get their hands on dollars so that they can prop up their own currency in, you know, in the Forex market because they can't print dollars, right? The Bank of Japan ran into this issue last September and October. And so what's been happening is, you know, what I call the sword of Damocles. The U.S. has had this great, immense, you know, hegemony and power built up over all these decades and it's done so well for us, but it's also built up this sword that's that stands above our head with, you know, hanging by, by a horsehair. And if Japan or China or Russia or some other country starts dumping treasuries in mass, this would force the Fed to make a decision like, are we going to allow treasury rates to soar to 10% or are we going to print you know, a couple more trillion in QE to swallow up all the debt that they're that they're dumping on the market. And, you know, that would further exacerbate the feedback loop of inflation domestically um, and make more and more issues for, um, you know, entities who are relying on low interest rate borrowing. And so this is, in my, in my opinion, it's, it's extremely, it's a danger that exists, like, and that's very prevalent, it's becoming more and more real. And unfortunately, it seems like people at, you know, the highest levels of state and treasury don't really you know, seem that aware of this problem. They kind of believe that the U.S. will remain, you know, a hegemonic superpower forever. And I think that's where, you know, Brent Johnson makes some really good points. Like, yes, the U.S. has an extreme, the U.S. dollar has an extremely strong network effect, but even he has pointed out, um, and I can point to some tweets that he's made about, you know, the U.S. not being able to hold this position forever because no country has been able to hold a reserve currency forever because of Triffin's dilemma, right? We have to continually export more dollars forever you know, and as the global economy grows faster than our domestic economy, that means we have to print more dollars um, into into uh, like our exporting uh, surpluses so to send out um, foreign to foreigners. And eventually, they'll lose faith in the dollar, and eventually, they'll have to switch to a new currency. Yeah. Then this problem's exacerbated by a bunch of other stuff too. I mean, with the weaponization of SWIFT. And mm -hmm. the settlement networks that exist, the dollar has this network effect. And uh, I don't know if I said this on Twitter or in a newsletter or just said it in, pers in person to somebody, but we essentially just destroyed part of our network effect by cutting Russia off from SWIFT and doing all the sanctions. You can think what you want about the situation between Russia and Ukraine right now, but weaponizing the dollar system to that degree uh, certainly lowered the network effect directly with Russia, but then it sent a signal to the rest of the market. Like, Oh, at any, at a moment's notice, they could flip a switch and cut us out from the dollar system. We should start diversifying. And obviously we've seen 
BRICS countries begin to huddle up and say, all right, let's create this alternative settlement network outside the dollar system. And then on top of that, it seems like the problem's coming to our shores too with Fed policy, jacking rates up, uh, creating this duration mismatch throughout our banking system. I mean, the, the amount of uh, losses that are sitting on bank balance sheets because of what's going on with treasuries is, is amounting close to, I believe, a trillion dollars now at this point. So they're just getting hit from all angles. Like you could have foreign countries dumping their treasuries because they need to defend their peg like Japan. But if a banking crisis continues here in the States, you can find our own uh, domestic banking banks have to actually sell treasuries to, to, um, to handle withdrawals. If people begin pulling their money out of the system, it's an absolute shit show. Exactly. And so, you know, everyone, this is the thing that people don't understand is people are buying treasuries because obviously treasuries are collateral, but really what everyone needs is dollars. And so if there's a surplus of treasuries in the system that are sitting at, you know, massive unrealized losses, um, you know, the banks may not want to realize those losses, but if they need to get their hands on dollars because they're suffering a liquidity crisis, they're going to have to to sell them. Um, And this is this is a risk to the U.S. Treasury market, obviously, and it's a risk to the United States. Yeah, and that's a big question because there, there's many theories out there trying to basically get into Jerome Powell's mind and think about what he, how he's thinking about all this. Uh, like, how long do you think they can keep rates high? Because I was actually shocked that they could actually take them above two and a half, three percent to where they are now and hold them there as long as they they have. So there's a school of thought that if the banking system here in the states persists. Uh, through this summer, they'll have to reverse course, but there's another school of thought that says, no, they're going to keep them high and keep them high for long because uh, it's hurting the European banking system, which uh, the Fed doesn't really care about. Yeah, the Fed is kind of a, you know, a bull in a china shop. They they raise rates. I, you know, I wrote this in, in that chapter. I was like, they raise rates and they say, you know, consequences be damned. We don't care what happens in, in Japan. We don't care what happens in Germany. We don't care what happens in the Eurozone. We just want rates to be high domestically to fight inflation. And, you know, that works as long as, you know, these other countries aren't dumping their treasuries to get their hands on dollars. And as soon as they start doing that, the Fed is going to have to reverse course and think, hey, is is our policy of being completely oblivious to what other countries are going through? Is that a good one? Um, And I honestly don't think it is. Uh, In regards to your question about, you know, rates, I really, I mean, Look, they, they want to raise rates, obviously, because they want to give the appearance of fighting inflation, just like every central bank wants to. But in the long run, I don't see how it's sustainable at all. Um, and this this runs into my what I call the Peruvian bull debt paradox. Right. It's like you raise the Fed rise, raises rates to fight inflation. But the most indebted entity in our system is the U.S. Treasury. And so that just puts the Treasury in, in further risk of of default because rates are higher and they can't pay them. So they have to issue more treasury debt to pay off these higher rates. And who's going to buy all these, all these bonds? Well, you know, the U S banking system is already at uh, capacity. Basically the money market funds are, have had a little bit more inflows. And so we've, we've, you know, that has helped the treasury out market out a little bit. Um, but as soon as the TGA is fully drawn down, which is coming soon here in a couple months, and we no longer have, um, you know, these low low rate bonds that that are funded. We'll have to roll them over with higher rate bonds. You know, the Treasury's deficits will start to expand and expand and expand. And if they want to keep rates high, that's fine. But the Fed's going to have to to finance it. The Fed's going to be the buyer. 
And so that's where I come in, you know, that's where I, I term this as debt paradoxes. The higher the Fed raises rates, the farther out, the farther behind they, they move on the curve. So basically, like, they're supposed to move up the curve and, and stay ahead of inflation or at least slightly behind it. But they'll actually be behind the curve and be moving further behind because the higher they raise the rates, the more the Treasury has to borrow, which means the f- more the Fed has to print, which means the, which means the more inflation will rise, which means the more the Fed will hike. And so this process will just kind of repeat, 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 and we'll be stuck in a in a exponential feedback loop for inflation um, for the time being, which is why that's that's kind of one of the main points of the dollar endgame is that we're we're now in a you know we're now we're now past the event horizon. Um, the Fed has trapped the Treasury in a black hole. And there's there's no escape. The debasement is inevitable. Yeah, I mean, just look over to Argentina right now. They had 100 percent inflation over the last year, and their rates are at like 80 percent or something like that, mm-hmm. which is insane. Exactly. And see, this is against all traditional Keynesian thinking, right? All the Keynesians will say, "Hey, higher rates, Phillips curve, higher rates. You know, we'll fight inflation. Inflation will be muted, and unemployment can, you know." Uh, stay, stay, stay high, and that's okay. But you see, you see an economy like Argentina where unemployment's high, inflation's high, and the more they're hiking rates, the more inflation's going up. Just because of, you know, what we just talked about—the proving bull debt paradox. The the higher you raise rates, the more the treasury has to to pay, and that means the more the Fed has to print. Yeah, and you think it's like it seems like it should be intuitive. Like if you raise rates, you raise the cost of capital, which makes it more expensive to do things to get goods to market, services mm-hmm. to market, which means the producers of those goods and services are gonna have to raise their prices onto the consumer. And it, it just feels very weird that we find ourselves in this situation and going back to the event horizon, the black hole. So you're saying they cannot kick the can down the road again, because that's been the big question go all the way back to like 2001, but 2001, 08, mm-hmm. European credit crisis. 2020 and now today it seems like everything's becoming more compressed and more exacerbated on shorter timelines and there are some people out there like no the fed still has some room to maneuver uh they could probably kick the can and uh, extend this this basically throw the ball and pray strategy moving (laughs) forward but i'm not convinced that that they have many options on the table that this may be the end game yeah, no, that's that's basically my thesis, right? That's that's why I called it the dollar endgame. And, um, you know, Luke Roman pointed out in October of 2021 that true interest expense on the debt is now 111% of federal tax receipts. And true interest expense is calculated as entitlement, pay goes, plus um, nominal interest on the debt per quarter. And that was during a period, 2021 was a period of record high tax receipts, um, you know, record high stock market valuations, crypto was pumping at, at, at all-time highs, you know, the, the treasury was in, was in its best position it could be. And if you looked at it, the entitlement, you know, payments and, and as, as well as the, you know, interest on the debt, um, it was more than the tax receipts. So the treasury's already passed the event horizon. And this problem will only get worse with time because, you know, as we know, if, with them trying, trying, to, uh, trying to hike rates into an inflationary crisis causing a recession, tax receipts are going to fall. And so this problem is just going to get worse. And the more they hike rates, the more the, the more severe the recession will get and the lower tax receipts they're going to have. Um, and so, yeah, I believe that they are past the event horizon. Now, can they, can they delay, 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 you know, the true crisis by these temp, you know, temporary pro, quote unquote temporary programs like the BTFP um, or not QE 
um, expansion of the balance sheet. Yeah, not QE expansion of the balance sheet. Yeah, they can they can delay, but the inevitable is is coming. The the biggest problem is the treasury, and the treasury's you know underwater, and there's no way to rescue it. You know, besides debasement, the numbers don't add up. And the reason why I think Luke Roman and you know I as well like consider entitlements as basically interest expense uh, on the debt is because you know entitlements are categorized as what's called um, non-discretionary funding by the Congressional Budget Office. So if you go to their website, you can check out what kind of funding they have and what kind of payments they, that the U.S. government has to make. And about 70% of all payments the U.S. government makes, uh, what are called uh, federal tax outlays or federal, uh, yeah, just federal outlays, um, 70% are uh, non-discretionary, which means these funds already are basically earmarked and forced to be sent out to you know the, the programs that they're intended for. And so it means that Congress can't easily just move the funds or, or change um, the funding parameters just by, you know, a congressional committee, you'd have to have a, a, a bill passed. And so these programs are on autopilot, and they're, they're just spending and spending and spending and spending. And as inflation rises, you know, we've seen this already with Social Security, the Social Security budget will have to increase because now seniors are going to pound the table and want to have a, a higher Social Security stipend. And so what will happen is you'll have tech, federal tax receipts increase, uh, or decrease, you'll have federal tax outlays increase, the deficit will get bigger, and the treasury will have to borrow more, and then add that on to the, to the interest rate problem we talked about earlier. Um, the treasury will just have to spend more and more and borrow more and more exponentially in order to keep the wheels on the bus. Yeah. This is further exacerbated by demographics problem, where you have all the boomers retiring at the same time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, exactly. Uh, oh, it's a beautiful shit show. So how does... Uh, how does Bitcoin fit into all this in your mind? So this is where I've been talking about, um, you know, Bitcoin as the new reserve currency. And it's, it's a very interesting um, dynamic because, you know, reserve currencies typically are centrally issued, right? You've, you have the U.S. dollar and then before that you have the British pound. You had, um, you know, the Spanish peso. You had the Portuguese. I believe it was the peso as well. Um, and all these these currencies fall into the, the problem of Triffin's dilemma because they're centrally issued. They have to be exporting more, you know, of these of these currency units than they um, otherwise would, and that creates these imbalances. But with a non-centrally issued currency like Bitcoin, Triffin's dilemma is obsolete. It doesn't apply because we don't have to worry about you know these issues of of trade imbalances because there is no trade imbalance because there's no central issuer, and so Bitcoin is potential. Uh, like potentially completely solves Triffin's dilemma. And that means that it, in my opinion, is a much su- more superior reserve currency than any other one that we could imagine. And so if, if Bitcoin becomes, um, you know, like more widespread and, and, and more used by especially, you know, shippers or, or importers in international trade, you could see a move by central banks to start holding, holding it as a reserve currency. And this, this brings up a really interesting game theory, right? Like there's obviously the, the Bitcoin or game theory of, the earlier you get in, right? Everyone gets Bitcoin at the right price, and the earlier you get in, the, the better off you are, and that's true for sure. But think about it from the nation state level. You know, if Zimbabwe adopts Bitcoin as a reserve currency and starts hoarding it, and then you know five other countries around them start doing the same, and then another couple countries around them start doing the same, and then you know obviously El Salvador, and then let's say Panama and Colombia and Peru and you know, Chile and then Korea, and you have all these other countries starting to enter, uh, you know, 
the Bitcoin reserve currency network, you could see an explosion in in value, um, not only in price but also just in you know network um, network usage. And and this would push more and more countries in, you know, because of the flywheel effect, it would shut, it would funnel more and more countries in because they'd be seeing the the losses they have on their books from these treasury holdings, and they'd say, hey, would I rather hold this? Or would I rather hold a pristine reserve asset that's non-centrally issued that solves Triffin's dilemma, that I could hold on my books forever and not worry about you know counterparties freezing it or or, or taking it? Yeah, I completely agree with, and that's I think that's a big question right now, especially if you consider the BRICS countries, primarily Russia and China, beginning to position mm-hmm. like, hey, we're going to do this basket gold back, yuan back, ruble back, whatever it is, who knows exactly what they're thinking. But I think they believe that they're going to usurp the U.S. dollar as a reserve currency with their Concanani scheme of whatever they come up with. And that's been the big question in my mind over the last six months as that trend has gotten stronger and it's become very apparent that they are dead set on releasing their own settlement currency, whatever it ends mm-hmm. up being, we'll find out. But that's the big question. Will that effort be in vain or will there be like a temporary transitionary period where it gains some traction before people realize like actually no Bitcoin superior to this? I think, I mean, it's going to be a learning process, obviously. But, you know, just this week we saw Russia taking more action in the mining space and yep. working to to increase their share of Bitcoin mining, which is, again, this is all adding up to my my basically my theory of, of you know, this reserve currency war between these nation states and them deciding which one's going to get in first and start stacking huge amounts of sats on their on their balance sheets in order to get ready for the new monetary system. Um, and I, I do think, look, I, I talked about this in another podcast, but, you know, of course, these countries want to move away from the dollar. The dollar is, you know, a, you know, hegemonic currency controlled by the U.S. Treasury and the Fed. And so they can censor transactions um, directly, literally, and any transaction in the world, because you know, if you're a if you're a bank in Kazakhstan and you're sending a payment to a bank in Russia, and it's a U.S. dollar payment, those payments have to be cleared through the U.S. Um, banking system, because by definition they have to be fungible with U.S. dollars. And so that means that the U.S. Treasury can essentially and and other entities um, obviously can directly censor transactions. And so this this creates a massive economic uh, lever for the uh, for the Treasury and for the U.S. State Department, and it's allowed them to basically censor people they don't like, you know, um, at will. And and you know, of course, their first inclination is of course terrorism and you know like violent hate groups and and anti-U.S. groups in in the Middle East, and you know pe- that may make sense at the time, but they can always expand this um, indefinitely to whoever doesn't support U.S. policy. And so um, I think these not, these countries want to move away from the dollar. Obviously, they want to create their own you know settlement and currency network. And China has been working on creating the dig- digital yuan and, and creating a, a settlement layer that they can they can trade with. But they all all these countries will run into the same issue of Triffin's dilemma of how are we going to export more currency outside of our country than we normally should. That means we have to be net importers. And Russia and China both are net exporters of goods. And so they're going to have to completely strip their industrial base if they want to do this. And I'm not sure they want to do that. And so, you know, we're running into this issue. And this is what Brent Johnson points out. Like, if the U.S. dollar is shaky, which it is, how much more shaky is the Chinese digital yuan, right? Exactly. And, and they might say, 
they might say it's backed by commodities, but who who's there to audit it? Who's there? You know, you have to trust. It's a trust me, bro. Again. Yeah. That's, that's always been my biggest hang up with like, people are like, Oh, we're going to go to this temporary yuan slash gold slash ruble back system. It's like, there's no transparency at the bank, mm -hmm. the people's bank of China or the Russian, Russian central bank. Like there's no way, even if the BRICS countries all are a bit perturbed with what's going on here in the U S I find it hard to believe that they would be so naive to be like, all right, let's just trust China and the people's bank of China with the, the global reserve currency. <laughs> Yeah. And not to mention, you know, like I said, China, they literally can't do it because right now they have what, you know, they have what's called a closed capital account, which means it's not easy for funds to flow out of the country. Right. So this is why all these chi rich Chinese investors um, use this casino and, and Macau and they use, you know, other casinos in Shanghai to launder their money and to send it out and just hoard up on Canadian and American real estate because um, they're trying to get out of their own country and they can't because there are capital controls. Yeah, I actually uh, experienced that in my own life. There's a Chinese oh, national really? owns the house that I rent. It's uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's definitely happening. I mean, I've seen it firsthand. Mm -hmm. And that's the other thing too is, as a U.S. citizen, as somebody who's been observing these markets and this trend develop over the last decade, I really want to get to the people in charge, or maybe not even the people in charge, just incite this idea in the minds of the masses here in the United States. It's like we have an incredible opportunity if we embrace Bitcoin. There's a lot of people out there who don't like what we've been doing. They don't like the dollar as reserve currency. We should probably just cut our losses because as we've described earlier in this conversation, there's the feds backed into a corner. There's really no way out except for inevitable hyperinflation at some point, probably in the next decade or two. Uh, maybe we should be first movers in Bitcoin, which Arguably, we already are. Americans own the largest stake uh, of Bitcoin in the world. And I would really like us to cut our losses, embrace Bitcoin, and make it so we don't have like an empire collapse like many civilizations throughout, throughout history have when they, use, when they lose the reserves and currency status. Yeah, exactly. That would be my hope. Um, and I talked about this with Daniel Prince on his podcast the other week. But, you know, if I could convince any single person um, to, you know, to orange pill them and turn them into a Bitcoiner, it probably would be, you know, Jerome Powell. Because even though I, I do not like him and I don't like his policies, I don't like what the Fed's done. I think they've made huge policy errors. Um, if we could get the Fed to start to switch gears and completely start moving off the dollar standard and into a Bitcoin standard, this would rapidly force every other country on earth to jump on the on the bandwagon. Um, because the Fed is, you know, the linchpin uh, that upholds the entire global monetary system. Um, when I was studying this whole thing and, and you know, reading all these research papers from the 1950s and reading all these books and talking to Brent Johnson, I, that, that I kept running into this issue of the U.S. being basically the sole, almost like a hyperpower, uh, you know, internationally in terms of the monetary system where we, we basically run the entire global economy. And so if, if, if the Fed starts switching, that's when things will really change. And the U.S. will be at a, at a, in a stronger position, you know, globally. Like this is a smart move for us. Yeah. And when you think about it, I mean, luckily, because of the spirit of American entrepreneurship, the, the citizens – have already set us up to succeed wildly if if they were to embrace it. I mean, we have a material amount of hash rate. Uh, a lot of the companies that are building 
the mm -hmm. technology and the applications that are giving people access to the Bitcoin network and making Bitcoin better are, are built here. Obviously, there are many more throughout the world, but it seems like there is a lot of innovation happening around Bitcoin here in the United States, particularly. Like we are set up to succeed. Again, it's just whether or not there is a political will to allow us to succeed, because that would be... That would be the worst possible scenarios where we have all this progress and all the, these mm -hmm. good innovations and things happening around Bitcoin here in the United States and we just shoot ourselves in the foot. And I guess that's a good topic to jump into. Like, What does the world look like if we do shoot ourselves in the foot and don't allow ourselves to succeed and embrace Bitcoin? Well, this is the this is the difficult part, right? Because if we move to a completely, you know, Bitcoin-based reserve currency system and every other country has stacked SaaS, you know, long before we did at much cheaper prices. And let's say Bitcoin, you know, if you know what, global debt and currency markets are four hundred trillion. And so let's say Bitcoin rises to half that market cap, two hundred trillion, you know, who knows what the price would be per coin, right? That that's an insane amount. That means each SAT is worth tens of thousands of dollars and the u.s now with zero on our balance sheet the rest of the, the world has moved there and we start we start stacking um it puts us in a very precarious position because we're still dealing with the after effects you know with the hangover from five decades of a fiat monetary system and exporting on manufacturing so we'd be walking to a world where everyone else has a reserve currency and we don't and in order to earn it, we have to actually provide value and create goods and not just print money and export it, um, you know, to get these to get our hands on some sats. And so it would basically impoverish the U.S., in my opinion, um, for at least a decade or so as we have to rebuild our, our domestic manufacturing and start earning back, you know, um, some sats to, to trade globally. So it would put us back pretty far, in my opinion. And, you know, there would be... Um, Obviously, there's there's going to be institutional uh, resistance to this because the current institutional actors benefit greatly from the current system. So they don't want to move to a Bitcoin monetary system where they won't have censorship rights and they won't have exclusive transfer rights um, and ability to move freely within the system. And so, you know, it's, you know, U.S. institutions like the Fed and the Treasury won't be, you know, they won't be too thrilled about this approach. But I think if if they look at this seriously enough and realize that, you know, per Jason Lowry's software, like this is a, a form of almost geopolitical, um, you know, like strategy warfare. They might be forced to to start changing their minds and, and start stacking sats and getting ready for a new system. Do you think this is on their minds at all? You think they think about this, or do you think they're so caught up in the problems that they're having to deal with that they're too distracted to even consider it? I think there are probably a few people, you know, at the at higher levels of treasury. Um, who are considering this, especially after Jason Lowry posted his um, his thesis. Um, I, I again, I'm not super connected at that level. I do have a friend who's a former um, special ops soldier, and he has a lot of people he knows in, in high levels of government. Um, you know, not insanely high level, but medium medium high level. Um, and he said that uh, actually a few of them mentioned his uh, Jason Lowry's book, and so that that itself is making a way its way, especially around the Defense Department. And people are starting to talk about that. So that's a very, you know, I think, uh, comforting sign that people are starting to take this seriously. But I, I don't think it's being taken seriously enough, especially by the people at the highest levels like Yellen and Powell. Yeah. Yeah, software is very controversial. I mean, mm -hmm. I can see what it, Jason's trying to do with it, but I just worry, like, again, if the Defense Department, if you do label Bitcoin 
military grade weaponry, particularly mining, it becomes nationalized. So that's the other part of this too, is like how much do we want governments getting in it? That's why I think, again, we have a great opportunity here in the United States. If we stay true to the ideals that this country was founded on freedom, freedom of speech, freedom of property, good property rights, Mm -hmm. sound money. And I would think, I think the best case scenario for us is the government saying like, all right, just go do your thing. Entrepreneurs take care of the network build out your mining operations. We're not going to tell you to do anything because that at the end of the day is what is going to allow Bitcoin to maintain its values. If it's sufficiently distributed, uh, hash rate ownership is distributed amongst many individuals and the whole mining industry doesn't become nationalized globally where you just have nation states controlling the mining and censoring blocks back and forth. It completely defeats the purpose for Bitcoin uh, and why it exists in the first place. Yeah, I agree. I, sh- I should mention, I don't, you know, wholeheartedly and unequivocally agree with everything that Jason wrote. Um, I still, I've only read like a little bit of his book. I need to read the rest of it, but I don't, I don't necessarily like want to see Bitcoin national, you know, Bitcoin mining nationalized or, or see, you know, industrial production regulated that highly. But what I really want to, um, you know, I really want the the treasury and the state department to take seriously is this idea of, you know, Bitcoin is a new reserve asset and being traded freely in terms of international trade. And so if, if that's the case, then the U.S. should absolutely buy some. Um, and, you know, maybe the Defense Department should create their own um, a few mining rigs. But I, I agree with you. I don't think that it should be to the level that, um, you know, he might be be wanting or mentioning. I think it should it should stay, obviously, a, a production of the free market. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be fascinating. What a time to be alive. Stuff's fun to think about gets daunting at times, heavy at times, but this is the cart we've been dealt. And uh, it's important to have discussions like these and get these out there. Like, how do you, how do you think this plays out? Like convincing individuals, that's the other hard part. We have to convince individuals globally that Bitcoin is good. It's good money. It's not a Ponzi scheme. It's not destroying the environment. Uh, You're going to want to adopt this. And I, I think that's another big hurdle. Not only do we have to convince Governments like, hey, you should cut your losses. This fiat monetary system is in its end game. It's going to implode <laughs> and explode right in front of your in your face. Um, not only do we have to convince them, but then we have to convince individuals that hey, that yeah, this digital money that you've been hearing about is actually legitimate. It's not a Ponzi scheme. It's not a get rich quick get rich quick scheme. It is the best money we've ever come into contact with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the you know the convincing process is difficult, especially in first world countries. But from my experience, you know, I have family in Venezuela, I have family in Peru, obviously in Chile and Argentina, and they are much more open and accepting of of Bitcoin or or other even other cryptocurrencies because usually they don't have the technical knowledge or just the understanding of the difference between the two um, than they are of traditional fiat currency. And so I think as as we you know progress further down this road of, of monetary debasement and inflation, and, and as these feedback loops start to get worse and worse, and explanation starts to move exponential, like we've said, I think people will start to, you know, it, it'll be like if you don't accept Bitcoin, you're an idiot, right? It'll be it'll get to that point where everyone's using it, and the only people who aren't are these stubborn, um, you know, hermit types who who are now the new conspiracy theorists of the people who don't, you know, want to 
to be included in modern society. So it, it'll be just you know much like the internet where th- there's a lot of resistance at first, and there's a lot of people saying, "Why do I even need this?" You know, like why do I need to search things up on on uh, you know AOL? Like I can just look in my phone book. Um, but mm-hmm. as the network effect grows, and as the utility grows, and then also as our current mon- monetary system dies, I think people will be convinced more and more of its utility and, and usefulness and it'll, it'll become Bitcoin adoption will become like basically inevitable, right? Once it gets to a certain point, it'll be every new per- participant is basically forced into the market by other participants. And, and at that point you can't stop it. Yeah. So what do your friends and family members say who are down in Peru and Chile and Colombia and Venezuela? Mm-hmm. What are, what are they, wh- why do you think they get it intuitively? I think uh, obviously there's, you know, the, the inflation cultural um, aspect of they are really struggling with the current monetary system. They're mad and upset at their government. Um, Peru's had a, had a new uh, president and he is, you know, a school teacher and he hasn't really had a plan. He's replaced his cabinet like 12 times. And my mom keeps talking to me about this and, and she's very upset about how they're currently running things and inflation is you know, at 20 year highs in Peru, it's at obviously record highs in Argentina. Um, all these, all these people are very upset and very, you know, just, I'd say, you know, maybe disenfranchised with their local um, currency and their, and, and the running of their monetary policy, because it's hurting their checkbook directly. And they're much poorer than we are here. So they have a lot less um, buffer zone. And so, you know, that's really pushing them to realize that they need to, you know, move into a new currency. Um, and, I have cousins in Venezuela who actually I, I taught my mom how to send them Bitcoin. And so they're my mom sends them about a hundred dollars of Bitcoin um, about once I think it's once a month, and that's enough for them to buy corn and flour and uh, oil. So they're able to, to live on that. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Mm-hmm. It works. It does work. It is. Uh, I actually had to do that. My wife uh, had a friend, a Venezuelan friend, when we were living in New York, and her one of her parents had to get cancer treatment and I had to teach her the only way for her to get money in the country is I had to teach her how to spin up a Bitcoin wallet, load it mm-hmm. up and, and send it to her parents. But it was cool to see. It is a shame that the media does the masses a, a, a disservice by just trying to paint Bitcoin as this currency for criminals or this Ponzi scheme or this mm-hmm. destroyer of the environment when it is an incredibly empowering tool for people the world over yeah exactly it's the last you know the last vestiges of the dying system are are fighting you know the inevitable and 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 they're they're going to do everything they can obviously to to fight against it but i think you know the debasement's inevitable the inflation's inevitable um you know and so there's they can argue with it they can try to try to point out some supposed flaws but i think as uh you know as as inflation rages higher and higher we're gonna see more and more people just move to it i mean just out of necessity like who cares what your political views are who cares what your you know views are on on you know um on 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 like the 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 rights of people to own bitcoin or what is security or commodity like honestly like most people don't care about that they're going to care about surviving and the reality is going to be you know people are going to either accept bitcoin and and be able to to you know provide for the families or not, and and so they're going to be be forced to do this one way or another, in my opinion. Um, so I I don't like seeing all this gaslighting. I mean, it's disgusting. It's reminiscent of a lot of stuff we've seen with Wall Street in two thousand eight, and um, you know, with the GameStop phenomenon, um, a lot of people, 
you know, basically blamed it all on retail traders and, 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 you know, patted the hedge funds on the back for overshorting a company um, and for a broken settlement and, and naked shorting system. But, um, you know, this no system lasts forever. And in my opinion, the system is, is reaching the, you know, the end of the road. We're, we're starting to move into the end game for sure. Yeah. And you mentioned you got your start writing this book and getting this thesis out there on Reddit. Was it Wall Street Bets? No, it was this Reddit called Super Stonk. Um, it was specifically about the GameStop uh, phenomenon and, and, you know, them being the, you know, the, the buy button being turned off essentially. And, and, and a lot of these, you know, these GME uh, apes, as they like to call themselves, are actually, you know, a lot of them are turning into Bitcoiners uh, because a lot of them were disenfranchised and angry at the system in 2021 was seeing the stock trading get shut down arbitrarily just to protect a few um, hedge funds and protect the interests of the prime brokers. And so them seeing directly like in your face, face broad daylight, the buy button being turned off and you not al- being allowed to buy a stock that's being, you know, experiencing a short squeeze was a, was a wake up moment. And a lot of them have said that they've read my work and started to buy Bitcoin because of it. Um, Hell yeah. Yeah. No, it's funny. Cause I, <clears throat> I remember when wall street bets was going on GameStop, AMC, Bed Bath and beyond, whatever, all the stocks, and I would dive into that Wall Street bet, bets Reddit and just like read what people are saying. And they were like, hey, this is the way to get back at the system. And it's like, hey, I get what you're doing. And I understand. I think it's somewhat admirable and virtuous that you're trying to fight back against the incumbent financial system that is mm-hmm. completely controlled by a select few and very much manipulated. But that's not going to be your your best bet at actually making a material impact on that system. Bitcoin is that. And so again, you can take this all the way back to 2008, uh, the aftermath of which Bitcoin was birthed out of like with Occupy Wall Street. It was the same thing. It was like, you can protest and get a Zucchetti park or whatever the hell it was called. Um, and, and try to voice your discontent with the state of the world, but you, you need a tool that's actually going to be able to defang these people. And Bitcoin is that tool. So I think, the fact that the uh, GameStop apes are beginning to turn to Bitcoin is an extremely encouraging sign because that was when that was all going on. I was watching from afar. I was like, oh, this is funny. Um, I, I like that you guys are doing this, but this is the wrong strategy. Like you need to defund these people at the root of the problem, which is money. Yeah. Monetary power, you know, is economic and military power and political power. Right. So, if you if you have a new system where these people no longer have any monetary power and cannot accrue it by, you know, cozying up to the Fed and sitting next to the money printer to to profit off cantillion effects, you can essentially you know reorder the global system um, overnight and and make sure that corruption and and uh, you know societal decay becomes a lot harder for these people to to. Um, instantiate in our economy um, becomes a lot harder to do these things because there's no money printer to profit off of. No, no. That's what mm-hmm. we have right out here in the studio. Fix the money, fix the world. Mm-hmm. Like you, you get beyond just like the financial aspects, like all this money printing leads to a misallocation of capital, perverse incentives. That's why our country's fat, arguably why we're stupid, arguably why all of our real estate is shit, why our roads are crumbling. It's because we, we don't have a correct pricing mechanism to actually accurately weigh opportunity cost to make capital allocation decisions that actually end up in better goods, better services, a more productive economy overall. Exactly. And, you know, 
this is where I start to think about, you know, the homelessness crisis and the drug epidemic and, you know, seeing suffering on the streets every day in, in the cities of the U.S. Like there's so much, so many people who are hurting and it's, it's honestly depressing and, and, and it, it makes me mad. I mean, this is part of the reason why I wrote the whole series is because when I first discovered how the, how the Fed works and how the Treasury works, I was just pissed off for, for a week. Like I couldn't believe that this was accepted and, and, and it was taught about in, you know, academic schools and uh, at the university I attended by, you know, PhDs who defended this system, not only on, you know, its, its practical grounds, but on its moral grounds. They, they said that this is the right way for a government to work. And I couldn't believe that, you know, stealing from the citizens in mass was something that they thought was acceptable. Um, you know, it's, it's one thing to tax people and then they can vote out the people who tax them too high or they can change the tax laws. It's another thing to just have an arbitrary, you know, board of governors that are unelected who decide the price of money and decide how much we're going to print today. Um, and they can just impoverish everyone else uh, at the expense of, of uh, you know, or at the profit of their friends. Yeah. Hey, man, debt is just money we owe ourselves. We're just going to keep printing. Don't worry about it. That's one of the most insidious uh, lines of thinking that has ever entered the thought of uh, of economics. And we're still paying the price today. Uh, so, end game. We've passed mm-hmm. the event horizon. I think we both believe Bitcoin's going to be the next re- reserve currency of the world. What are you thinking in terms of potential purchasing power, value of Bitcoin once this happens, especially if you have that flywheel begin going off, which, I mean, we got a signal that it's happening last week too. Unfortunately for the the Bataan Sovereign Wealth Fund, they got caught up in BlockFi and Celsius. So uh, that made the world aware that they were stacking Bitcoin within their Sovereign Wealth Fund. So that's country number two publicly, maybe three. I think everybody would concede that Russia is definitely stacking Bitcoin. So we have El Salvador, Russia, Bhutan, publicly stacking Bitcoin. Once that flywheel gets off in earnest, how crazy do you think this gets in terms of the value that will accrue to the Bitcoin network? I think it, I mean, this is where I think it goes exponential. Um, and again, people think I'm, I'm, when I say about this, talk about this in terms of inflation, people also think I'm in, I'm insane and I'm a conspiracy theorist. But really when you look at the network effect and you look at the flywheel effect like we talked about and that keeps dragging in more and more participants, it's not hard to do, to imagine this to actually taking place. Um, you know, there's, you know, in international monetary economics, there's a phenomenon called currency wars and beggar than neighbor policies where currencies will, you know, countries will devalue their own currency and then another country will have to devalue their currency to, to try to get more trade um, uh, exports from their country. So, so they'll basically be in a race to the bottom, devaluing each, devaluing and fighting against each other to try to get the best rate, um, right, against the dollar. And there's no reason to think that that wouldn't that that wouldn't play out um, in terms of stacking sats, right? The first nations to move are going to be the the um, the four the fastest and strongest movers in the system, and then once they start moving and ev- start moving rapidly, and the price goes to fifty, and then to eighty, then a hundred, then two hundred, then three hundred, other nation states are going to start worrying and being like, "Hey, would you rather hold on to our own currency or onto these dollars that are depreciating daily and that can be censored or seized, or would we rather start stacking sats and uh, like I said, the last nation to move on is going to be the, the loser in the system. They're going to essentially have nothing. They're going to have to rebuild all their wealth from the ground up because they're going to have to export goods to to gain any sats. And so um, 
you're going to see, in my opinion, you're going to see this accelerate and you're going to start to see the price go, you know, especially at a certain point in the end game, you know, the price will basically go exponential and, and it'll be every day, almost every day will be up, you know, 10%, 10%, 10, 10% for months on end because everyone will be rushing because there's no supply limit on a fiat currency. They can print as much as they want to try to get their hands on it. Um, and so I think that it goes exponential. And like I said, I, I didn't do, I haven't done the math, so I don't know what it would be per sat, but just do the numbers of 400 trillion of global debt um, and Forex markets divided by 21 million Bitcoin. And that should give you a rough estimate of where it should be at, at the end of this. Yeah. So we got to stay humble and stack sats freaks. It's, uh, it's going to get crazy. What do you think the social ramifications of this type of rapid monetization of Bitcoin will have, you have hopes for a somewhat peaceful transition or is it going to be so chaotic that there's going to be a bit of a societal upheaval for some time before the dust settles and we get back to being able to be civil economic partners? Well, I think you look, I think that we're going to have obviously some societal uh, upheaval. I think people are not going to be happy with inflation ripping because, you know, kind of the point of my thesis is, Bitcoin going exponential happens, especially towards the later stages of this. The, the, what's going to happen first is just inflation is just going to get worse. And Bitcoin may rise to 100, 200, 300,000, but it won't really go exponential until inflation gets so untenable that people can't even live. And um, there's a study done, forgot by who, uh, that, that showed that in about 20 countries that experienced food riots, it was because inflation had reached um, the, the average price of food was more than 40% of the average, per, the median person's salary. So once we hit that threshold, that's when riots break out and are basically like, you know, widespread throughout a country. We saw this in the Arab Spring. You see this in Venezuela right now. Um, and so once we hit that threshold of, of median food prices per month being more than 40% of someone's income, uh, that's when things start to get not so great. But I, I, I don't believe that we're going to go into, you know, the zombie apocalypse that some people are preparing for that everyone's going to be hurting each other and we're going to be like, fighting at the Walmart over the last, you know, Snickers bar, right? I think that people, the adoption of Bitcoin will be, be more and more, will speed up. And all these tech companies, if you think about it, like from a monetary perspective, they'll think like, wow, think how much money and funding will be going, moving into Bitcoin very rapidly as we switch completely from the, from, uh, from the system, from the old system into the new one. And so you'll see this huge influx of capital and resources and intellectual capital um into bitcoin and you'll see all these companies start popping up new payments new payments companies you know new ones setting up um you know probably financial statements and balance sheets for for small businesses that they can operate on a bitcoin standard um and that all can happen very quickly right we're talking a matter of months i mean six to twelve months for most of these things to be spun up um and so i think you know giving you exact timelines and giving you exact things that will happen is obviously impossible but i think um you know, there'll be more and more unrest and people will be uh, very upset. And probably when we finish moving to the new system, everyone will act as if all this was obvious in hindsight. They'll say, hey, you know, oh, of course the Bitcoiners knew about this. I knew about it too. And I, I didn't stack stats earlier because I just, you know, I didn't have the money or I, they'll make up some excuse. Um, but um, I think there'll probably be also, honestly some jealousy also against the Bitcoin, the original Bitcoiners because of their newfound wealth. Um, of people being like, it's not fair. And you know, life isn't fair, but you have the chance to stack now, so might as well. You were on Tinder when I was learning the blockchain. <laughs> exactly. 
I was doing yeah. was doing my hard work and due diligence. I made an educated decision. It was not luck. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. That's going to happen. But I'm also optimistic. Yeah, like, like I think I'm optimistic as well because I do think <clears throat> we have been afforded somewhat of a luxury now that Bitcoin's 14 years old. White paper will be 15 later this year. We've had a lot of time to build out the network, the layers above the network, the mining industry, uh, the UX around interacting with the network. And I do think, like you said, once that light bulb goes off for many people, particularly in the tech sector, they are savvy entrepreneurs and more importantly, competent technologists who know how to implement this stuff into their stacks that the network and the ecosystem around it has gotten to a point where it'll be relatively trivial to begin implementing the ability to receive and send Bitcoin or interact with Bitcoin or use Bitcoin as some financial collateral within Mm -hmm. a tech stack or a banking stack. Yeah. And I mean, to not only add to that, but like think of the game theory, they'll play out as we have a dual monetary system. Um, You know, and Lynn Alden's talked about this, but um, there's something called Gresham's law, right? Where, um, there's basically a war between two different currencies, one that's overvalued and one that's undervalued. Um, and the undervalued one will be used at first more because it's, it's losing value and people want to get rid of it. But once that happens, you know, there'll be almost a game theory, like push into the new monetary system that will hurt the old one. So an example is let's say, you know, Bitcoin's at 500 K and appreciating quickly. And there's, you know, let's say a third of the businesses in the U S now accept Bitcoin. Well, if you see this happening and you see, hey, Bitcoin is rising, um, everyone's moving to Bitcoin standard, I might as well go to the bank, max out all my credit cards, max out all my loans, and just buy Bitcoin and then just go and pay for my groceries and everything in Bitcoin. And who cares about my credit score? Who cares about all these old fiat you know, mechanisms of control because they won't matter anymore? Because what are they going to do? Seize a bank account with $0 in it? They can't do that. Um, and if you don't have any collateral posted for any of these loans, then how are they going to collect it? So, you know, there, there could be people that start, you know, inadvertently maybe hurting the old system in order to get into the new one. And that would speed its demise, obviously. Yeah. That's when Gresham's law flips to Thier's law instead of bad mm-hmm. money driving out good, you get the good I money could. driving out the bad. Exactly. And that's the switch that, um, will, I think that's one of the, the catalysts to turning Bitcoin exponential. That's when, again, like we won't just see, 200k to 400k we'll see 1 million to 5 million and then 5 million to 20 million yeah it's gonna be fun it's gonna be exhilarating i don't know if fun's the word to describe it but it's, <laughs> it's gonna, be, gonna be it's gonna be crazy that's that's for sure it's gonna be <laughs> yeah. a ride i keep telling people it's a ride i i'm not gonna tell you if it's gonna be all good or all bad it's probably gonna be both but it's gonna be a ride for sure yeah so what do you think uh short term here obviously we had the blow up of Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank. Uh, we've had this banking crisis very eerily similar to 08, where you had a, a few bank failures in the beginning of the year, and then the fireworks went off in the fall of 2008. Obviously, um, Fed's got rates staying high. They're still raising by 25 bips at least. Um, what do you think happens in the short term, next three months? What are you looking at? I saw you're posting about. Um, uh, the reverse repo. Is there any signal mm-hmm. in that market right now? 
Yeah, so reverse repo is essentially right, like money market funds and and you know primary dealers parking their cash at the Fed in order to get their hands on treasuries because they need that collateral. And it's better for them to do it there than it is for them to outright buy treasuries because if they buy them, they're going to have unrealized losses on their balance sheet. Um, but I think you know obviously the banking system is under stress <coughs> right now, and the, in BTFP and other programs that have been created are trying to to you know hold the system together with duct tape and bailing wire. Um, and a lot of people have asked me if I think that 2008 is coming again, coming again, but personally, I actually don't. Um, and the reason is multi, you know, multifaceted, uh, Linaldin's done some great articles on this. Um, but mainly because the fed now knows how to fight a banking crisis and they're going to create as many liquidity programs and loan funding programs and zero interest rate loans as they need to, in order to keep the wheels on the bus. And so I, I believe that even if there is a banking crisis, the fed will step in and print as much money as needed to keep everything solvent. Um, but in terms of Bitcoin, what's been really encouraging is seeing the price rise into a crisis. That's us seeing this decoupling of market narrative start to emerge where instead of viewing Bitcoin as a risk asset and as something that trades basically on par with NASDAQ and, and you know the higher beta S&P stocks, we're now seeing it trade as its own bona fide um, you know, basically like safe haven asset, kind of like gold. Um, and actually it's obviously been outperforming gold by multiple factors because gold's up eight or 10% and Bitcoin's up what, 80% since the start of the year. Um, and so I think that the market's starting to sniff out the coming debasement and coming QE and the pivot and they're starting to get ready for, for a move. So I think into this year, we're gonna see Bitcoin trade probably sideways and up. So I'm, I'm not expecting this year to be a huge bull year, but I'm expecting this year to be, um, overall uh, a good year for bitcoin and and we'll see a rally maybe up to 40,000 uh, i don't know but um, the true debasement really starts kicking in um end of this year early next year when the fed is forced to pivot because they are you know obviously the the tga is which is something else that we should mention like their own checking accounts running out of funds um they have about 190 billion dollars as of uh, april 15th and then they're going to get an influx obviously because of the tax taxes and that could buy them a few you know a few more months but probably by the end of this year we're going to be seeing um them having to raise the debt ceiling and kick the can again um and start and the fed will start probably start to have you know start qe just to hold the interest rates down because they'll run into the same problem we've talked about if they keep rates high the banks aren't solvent companies are going under left and right and the treasury itself will be pulling itself deeper and deeper into the black hole yeah so for the freaks out there, when you say TGA, you mean Treasury General account, correct? Yeah, exactly. It's basically the U.S. government checking account, and you can see it on uh, Fred um, if you look it up. And I believe some some people have also published it on TradingView. Yeah, yeah, it's gonna be fun. I wouldn't mind like a just a, a flat to humble pump here, more time to stack more sats. Because when it happens, when it rips, freaks, it's gonna rip, and there's gonna be a lot of people like, damn, I should have bought when it was 25K, when it was 27K, when it was 40K. So I, I, like you said, like I don't think people realize, I mean, people just literally chemically, our brains cannot comprehend exponential functions in real time. And that's what we're gonna experience is an exponential move. Exactly, and that's, I mean, that's what we saw with the GameStop stock, that's what we've seen with, um, you know, different different securities that have underlying factors of feedback loops where like a gamma squeeze or short squeeze where the more and more they buy, the more they have to buy because the more underwater they are. 
Um, and you'll see the Fed run into the same dilemma, right? Like the Treasury's underwater, they print more money to to buy the bonds, the Treasury spends them into the real economy, and then inflation rises and the Treasury has to spend more next year or in the next quarter and the Fed will have to print more. And this this cycle doesn't end. Like this is what I've been trying to tell people is I know that, you know, the US dollar has been stable, relatively stable for the last 50 years, but no fiat currency lasts forever and and no country's immune from feedback loops. And so, you know, the US is no exception. We can fall victim to this just as easily as anyone else. Yeah. That's another thing too, is they're able to give themselves a little bit of breathing room due to how they manipulate the CPI. So they're able to come out and say, yeah, inflation's only 6.1%. But I mean, down here, I just know that not to be true just by looking at my grocery bill and then gas prices too. Like I went home for to Philadelphia for a few weeks, then came back to Austin and gas prices were up 10 to 15% like within a three week period. They're back above mm-hmm. $3.40 where I am. They were below $3 a month ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, OPEC is is uh, cutting production and, and you know we're seeing more and more countries trying to move off the petrodollar system, right? I think, uh, was it France for the first time ever paid for a li- you know, liquid natural gas shipment in, in March, um, not using US dollars. Yeah. And so if, you know, the, the network effect of the dollar is strong and it's actually incredibly strong, which is what Brent Johnson points out. But, you know, of course he, he admits it's not, it's not a, uh, you know, golden hand, it's a golden handcuff. It's, it, it doesn't work. It doesn't work forever. It's not a diamond set thing. No, you can see death by a thousand cuts. You know, Macron welching yeah. on hit on his drive to support the dollar. You have obviously cutting off Russia Oh. That's, uh oh, we lose you. Can you hear me? And he's back. Okay. It's all good. I wouldn't worry about it. Okay, I'm on my phone now because my computer died. Okay. I'll um. Yeah, I guess we can just wrap up. We were talking about what were we uh, what were we just ending on, Logan? Um, we were talking about um. Let's see. We're talking about um, Bitcoin as reserve currency, people switching to it. Um, and then we're talking about social, de- like the very end of um, like how basically if there's going to be social unrest in the system after, um, you know, during this moment, during this switch. And we kind of said there was. But, um, yeah, I apologize for that. It's oh, yeah, my computer has been having battery issues and um, no, need. it's it's plugged in and charging, but it's, or it's plugged in. It's not charging and it's gone down to zero and it just died. So, well, sorry about that. You don't need to apologize. And I remember okay. what we were touching on, which is the network effect of the dollar and the fact that Macron is doing LNG settlement trades in a currency other than the dollar. Like you said, Brett Johnson says, yes, we do have this massive network effect. It's very powerful, but I mean, a signal like Macron and France doing an energy trade outside the dollar is a very strong one. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a sign of the system starting to, to fall apart, right? Um, and you know, this this current paradigm isn't isn't uh, you know it never lasts forever, which is something else I point out in my book. A really interesting tidbit is the average expected life expectancy of a reserve currency is eighty years. And guess what? You know, we entered reserve currency status in 1944. And so that means our, our lifeline is up by 2024. And so this is coming very soon. It's coming down the pike. And so definitely concerning. And, and you know, other countries, too, have expressed 
desires to move off. Um, we see India and uh, you know China and and some other countries are trying to make a, a, a regional settlement currency so they can trade with each other. And you know the other options are really poor, right? Um, and also, but let me know: is vertical okay, or should I go horizontal? Vertical, vertical is good. Vertical is good. Okay. Um, but the other the other options, right? Like, aren't actually good good solutions for for the for the global system because if we create a if we create a regional currency block that's traded between um, several different countries like you know India, Russia, and China. Um, that's another closed system that people won't really have access to, and they can't make it a, an open system because they'll need to export more currency units than they have, and so that'll cause their own currency to debase. And so all the, all these countries doing these measures, in my opinion, they're stopgap measures, and I've been talking with um, Brand Johnson and, and Luke Roman about this, and both of them kind of agree that it's it's extremely hard to move off the dollar system. You know, Brent, Brent points out that the U.S. will enforce our hegemony with violence. And that's absolutely true. We, we have the entire U.S. military complex standing behind, um, standing behind us, ready to fight anyone who wants to move off the move off the petrodollar system. And this is where Bitcoin comes in as the perfect solution, right? Because Bitcoin is unkillable. You know, it doesn't matter how big your military is, doesn't matter how powerful your treasury is, doesn't matter how many bombs or, or weapons you have, you can't destroy it. And so, as a reserve currency, it's not only probably the best solution; it's probably the only solution. Because it's the only one that can fulfill all the requirements that a reserve currency must have, which is pristine reserve asset, um, minimal counterparty risk, used for widespread use in global trade, and not a, not a centralized issuer, which is what gold used to be in the old system before um, we moved to a pure fiat system. Yeah. When you put it that way, it's almost like Bitcoin can lead to a more peaceful world where you don't have to defend your world reserve reserve currency with uh, a massive military because you don't have the ability because you don't have control over it and you, you can't force people to use it or not use it they're going to use it because it's the best one but you have no control over it this is the future i want to see pb i'm going to call you pb it's just easier yeah that's fine um well this has been great thank you for doing this um it's a good bull fuel peruvian maybe you should call it peruvian bull fuel throw it on throw it on the bitcoin space right now or throw bull fuel on it yeah absolutely i'm i'm glad that i'm my, you know my message is getting out there and my way of thinking is getting out there um i'm relatively new to the bitcoin world um so you know I, there's been several large other bitcoin accounts that have been starting to read some of my writings and, and put me on on these spaces so i'm definitely grateful for that um and i'll be at the bitcoin conference in miami if anyone else is going um so definitely would love to meet up and, and talk if you're going to go there. I will be there. Be on a couple panels. We'll be doing a live podcast there too. Um, at the open source stage. So let's come check that out. I'm looking forward to meeting you in person. Where can anybody find out more about what you're writing, your YouTube, Twitter? Yeah, sure. So on Twitter, I'm proving underscore bull, just how it sounds, all lowercase. Uh, same thing on um, medium um, and I have a website called the dollarendgame.com where I've published all my writings um, and put up um, you know a lot of resources as well as reading lists for basically understanding what I have come to understand about the monetary system 
Um, and I have a YouTube channel called Peruvian Bull, which is the handle at Peruvian underscore bull again. Um, and I've published parts one through three of my dollar end game series. There's five parts. So it's about 60% of the way done. So if you want to see a video version of my series for free, you can go on there and check it out. Um, and I also have a book on, on Amazon that's, uh, called the dollar end game. And that's also by Peruvian Bull. And so you can check that out too, if you want to, um, but yeah, that's where you can find me. Um, and I'm looking forward to, to meeting in Miami for sure. Hell yeah. Go check it all out, freaks. Thank you for your time on this glorious Monday. Peace and love.